framed by the transvolcanic belt and the mountain range called Sierra Madre Oriental. The large valley of Cuetlaxcuapan sits at 2,160 meters above sea level. It was once surrounded by streams and rivers. This idyllic place of stable weather and fertile surroundings remained practically uninhabited for thousands of years. Until, on April 16, 1531, only ten years after the fall of Tenochtitlan, the City of Angels was founded. Puebla is a truly fascinating city that over the centuries has been a crucial powerhouse for the arts, architecture, industries and education. Behind the beautiful facades of the colonial buildings that grace our streets, there's hundreds of stories about a city that was envisioned to be an aspiring model for all Spanish territories in the Americas and has been the canvas of key events that shaped the fate of the nation. Puebla is famous for these and many other reasons, but perhaps what consistently brings thousands of visitors every year is our busy gastronomic calendar that fascinates and wins people's hearts and tummies with its rich, fascinating and always delicious dishes, sweets, craft drinks and baking traditions. For so long I've been wanting to make this episode that I can hardly contain my excitement because your journey into the fascinating world of poblano gastronomy begins here. Welcome to the history of Mexico's culinary jewel. You are listening to Paz de Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocio Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, subscribe to my newsletter, contact me and connect on social media, check the show's description on your podcast app. What is food? Seems an innocent enough question, but surprisingly the answer is not just, well, things we eat. The field of food studies has proposed many definitions that try to capture the multiple dimensions and components of food, such as beliefs, taste, techniques, historical transformations, creativity, ideologies, and so many other things that condition and influence choices and motivations that result in a particular gastronomic identity. For a long time, we have heard the rather simplistic expression, you are what you eat. But really, I think we should turn it around 
and say, we project who we are into our food. Because I think that exploring with curious eyes the traditional food of a place is a very good way to get to know the culture that shaped it. Since the 2010 declaration of the Michoacán paradigm as intangible cultural heritage of mankind, Mexican food has seen a steady global rise in popularity, and more and more people are willing to travel, read, and try for themselves ingredients, flavors, and foods that are well, actually traditional from Mexico and not from a foreign restaurant chain. Some of the regional cuisines of Mexico have jumped under the spotlight thanks to the promotion of food enthusiasts, chefs, and TV shows. So, of course, you've heard about, I'm sure, um, the food from Yucatan, Oaxaca, Mexico City's many tacos, and the fishy Baja cuisine. The truth is, delicious as they are, they are hardly representative of all the immense breadth and depth of Mexico's gastronomic variety, which I try to represent and put in context here on the podcast through the serious culinary regions of Mexico which you can revisit. But perhaps less known to the world, but really admired nationwide, is the vast gastronomy of Puebla, that has delighted for centuries visitors and locals alike. As you sure know by now, I am indeed a proud born and bred poblana. And as part of my many food-related projects, I do private gastronomic experiences where my guests get to learn the history of my hometown, and try for themselves many culinary treasures. Now, this is indeed an audio production, so it's a good challenge to try and convey what is largely a sensory experience here on the podcast. So, what I want to do is to share a little bit of the fascinating cultural history that frames Puebla's cuisine, the nature of the city and region, the people that have built these angelopolis, and tell you about some of the many cultural changes that have taken place here. Because I want to make the case that culinary traditions are a reflection of deeper, wider, and long-standing cultural phenomena and historical circumstances. And Getting to know these factors will help us make sense of how and why we have come to introduce our ideas, aspirations, and creativity into incredible food knowledge and traditions that have endured the test of time. And hopefully one day, we'll get to explore it together. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode. First things first, let's begin by saying that Mexico's culinary landscapes mirror the vast and contrasting geographical zones of the country itself, where multiple microclimates and ecosystems provide each region with a unique range of ingredients and sources of food. The state of Puebla and its capital of the same name are no different. Located in the majestic central high plains of Mexico, its vast valleys are framed by the iconic volcanoes of Popocatépetl, Ixtasíhuatl, and Malinche. 
and at the center lays the ancient valley of Cuetlaxcuapan, which is roughly about 100 kilometers southwest of Mexico City. The soil of this region owes its fertility to the abundance of minerals, which are a byproduct of the volcanic activity, but is also blessed with an abundance of groundwater, rivers and streams, the combination of which made this large area the cradle of Mesoamerican agriculture. Actually, not too far from the actual city of Puebla is the Tehuacán-Cuicatlán biosphere, that is considered by archaeobotanists the area where the domestication of our primordial crops took place around 12,000 years ago. Indeed, our ancient food system developed from proto-farming and foraging, and the eventual domestication of teocintle, which is a variety of wild grass that over a long period of time was transformed into the corn we know and recognize today, which was cultivated along with beans, chiles, coedets, tomatoes, complemented with a variety of fruits, herbs, wild animals, freshwater fish, and insects that together became the foundation of Mexican cuisine. In fact, in episode 56, which is available in Spanish and English, Rafael Mier, a Mexican leading corn activist, explained the importance of protecting and continue cultivating the many varieties of corn across the country. You can find the link to revisit that conversation on the description of the episode. Now, the recognition of a cuisine as intangible cultural heritage of humanity, mm, big title, goes way beyond the complexity or variety of recipes. It means a recognition to the cultural food system that includes farming, ritualistic agricultural practices, and in our case, centuries-old skills, culinary techniques, and ancestral community costumes and manners. Gastronomic heritage, therefore, is not only valued because it is unique, but because of its hyper-relevance to the community who practices and owns it, the strong bonds that these practices create build a sense of pride, belonging, and solidarity. And these are all of the things that are transmitted from one generation to the next. But while the roots of our indigenous cuisine are still incredibly important, Mexican food as we know it only really came to exist because of the complex legacy of colonization. Indeed, after the fall of Tenochtitlan in 1521, Spanish conquistadors and settlers introduced many products from Europe and around the world, such as fruits, vegetables, herbs, and cereals like wheat, oat, barley, that together found a new home along with cattle, farm animals, such as cows, goats, sheep, hens, quails, and even working animals like mules, oxen, and donkeys. With these massive changes and influx of European ingredients also came many foreign gastronomic traditions and cooking methods, which merged with the pre-existing indigenous cuisines during the Spanish regime that extended until 1821. The colonial period put an end 
to the previous geopolitical organization of the territory by indigenous cultures that had separate and independent city-states that over the centuries formed alliances, kingdoms, and even empires. But under the Spanish rule, the organization of the land responded to the strategic control of resources that changed a lot during 300 years. It might surprise you to know that the first European colonizers to actually settle permanently in the American continent were actually Spaniards. And yes, it is true that Vikings were known to have visited and built temporary towns in modern-day Canada, but they never intended to settle permanently. To give you an idea, the Spanish control of this territory known under the umbrella name of New Spain, extended from part of modern-day Canada in the north and included almost all of the Caribbean islands in the southeast and a lot of what is in the middle. At some point, it had two commandancies, eight kingdoms, and one of them was the Kingdom of Mexico that included seven provinces, Puebla, was one of them, and it stretched from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific Ocean. But how did Spaniards achieve to conquer a territory that was so vastly populated, you may wonder? Well, the answer is in making clever decisions. You see, when Hernán Cortés and his army started the colonization process, or the planning of it, they forged strategic alliances with the strongest enemies of the Mexica, who ran the Aztec Empire. And after the alliance's victory, a systematic program of Spanish urbanization started and followed a simple pattern of locating indigenous cities, destroying them, and building new Spanish settlements. And that is exactly how most cities that we now call colonial were created. However, that was not the case of Puebla, because for some strange quirk of fate, the Cuetlaxcuapan Valley had never really been inhabited before. Its prime geopolitical location near the port of Veracruz and its proximity to Mexico City, agreeable weather and green surroundings gave them all the right reasons to create a through-and-through -through Spanish city. And so... After the necessary consultations and lobbying, finally, on April 16th, 1531, with the arrival of a royal charter signed by Queen Isabella of Portugal, Holy Roman Empress, Queen Consort of Italy and Spain, Queen of the Romans, Lady of the Netherlands and wife of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, grandson of the Catholic kings, the City of Angels was officially founded and St. Michael Archangel was chosen as its patron saint. During the first decades of the Spanish regime, the province of Puebla was partially administered by Franciscan friars who were partly in charge of overviewing the process of populating the city, with honorable Catholic families, preferably of good fortune and just one year after the foundation of the city, the total number of residents was of 80 Spaniards 
including a few widows. The social history of Puebla, therefore, is slightly different, as you can see, to other contemporaneous colonial cities, in the sense that there wasn't a native population. So, thanks to the Tlaxcaltecan alliances, it was agreed that several indigenous barrios, or districts, will be built in the outskirts of Puebla, in order to supply the much-needed workforce to build and provide the necessary crafts and products for this purpose. And so, Xanenetla, Xonaca, La Luz, Analco, San Jose, and San Francisco, among other barrios, became the home of bricklayers, potters, bakers, tanners, and even musical instrument makers, among many other craftsmen and women, that ran all sorts of workshops and businesses that catered for the newly created metropolis. At the center of these new indigenous settlements, the Spanish city was built. What this history reveals is that racial segregation was a key criteria for the Franciscan friars who planned the city. In fact, the whole Spanish colonial regime was incredibly rigid and stratified, and they went out of their way to create and enforce a structure that reflected their beliefs or what they saw was the natural order of things, meaning that white Europeans had rights and power over everybody else, meaning everybody else in the caste system, and those below them were always reminded of their place in society. This also shows that the role of religious orders in New Spain went far beyond providing spiritual guidance and religious structure, because the church as an institution, was a backbone upon which the colonial government operated. I've told you earlier that the Valley of Puebla had uncanny advantages over other territories, including both a privileged geographical location at the center of the country and direct routes to the important ports of Veracruz and Acapulco, which meant direct access to goods that came from Europe and Asia. And this turned out to be a key factor that shaped our particular cultural and culinary history. Let's not forget that the biggest reason behind Spain's colonial project was the advancement of its international trade. And it was due to this intense activity and its unforeseen consequences that paved the way for the creation of a complex and unique gastronomy that was spiced with ingredients and flavors from all over the world. And again, due to the strategic location and the clear trade vocation of Puebla, this city became the epicenter of the transatlantic and transpacific commerce, which meant it held control over the public auctions and distribution of staple products from Europe and exotic, luxurious commodities from the East. It won't surprise you to know that the most profitable maritime route was indeed the longest, which was dominated by massive merchant galleons that sailed across the Pacific between the port of Acapulco and Manila. In fact, 
that gave name to the most famous vessel known, the Manila Galleon, or now of China. It is estimated that between 1565 and 1815, almost 20,000 ancient people traveled across the Pacific on board of these galleons, and for 250 years, fruits, spices, vegetables, grains, oils, pottery, furniture, art, fabrics, and all sorts of luxurious products were part of the incredibly profitable Asian trade, and Puebla had access to them all. That, together with a permanent influx of products from Europe, were the foundation of the colonial Poblano pantry. And for the first time in history, ingredients such as tamarind, mangoes, cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, aniseed, coriander, and cumin, among many other, opened a whole new world of culinary possibilities of flavors and textures. In fact, the commercial activity prompted by the Manila Galleon was so important that even had its own space where public auctions were held. And that was the famous Parian market. And the very word Parian in Filipino means market. We really had a big and sophisticated commercial relationship with the Far East. That also gave way to complex geopolitical issues and consequences. You see, in order to secure a safe place for the large merchant vessels that came from the New Spain to Asia and had to disembark and be loaded and prepared for the long trans-Pacific journey, the authorities of New Spain saw the need to further expand its maritime territories all the way to present-day Philippines. And so, from 1565 to 1821, this vast archipelago was under the control of the viceregal government based in Mexico. Now, who exactly benefited from these exotic spices and ingredients? Well, it was primarily, but not exclusively, the affluent houses of rich Spaniards and mestizo people, but also nunneries where women of Spanish and indigenous origins often lived and worked together with African and Asian enslaved ladies. In these institutions, women had to share, either by need or force, their culinary knowledge, techniques, and even recipes, resulting in a slow but steady transformation of the colonial diet, as they learned from each other and experimented with new and previously unimaginable combinations, such as corn, masa, and lard, sugar and cacao, garlic and tomato, wheat flour and pulque, Middle Eastern spices with indigenous dishes, and chiles with, um, well, almost anything. Now let me tell you about a new type of historical research within food and cultural studies that has made visible incredibly important aspects of otherwise untold or silenced stories, and that is the perspective of decolonization. What does that mean? In a nutshell, it refers to the need to address the fact that for the longest time, our worldviews and social studies have been shaped by historical documents and voices that reflected the ideologies, opinions, narratives, and political interests of dominant elites. But in the case of post-colonial nations, means that for centuries, our history and the vision we had about ourselves was the one that Europeans projected on us. 
prejudice and biases included, of course. Here in Mexico, there has been a surge of fascinating works exploring not only indigenous and European roots, but also the legacy of African enslaved people that were brought here. But let's not forget that colonization not only occurred in the Americas. Spain also was a former colony. Indeed, after the war against the Islamic states of the Al-Andalus and the expulsion of Jewish or Sephardi people in 1492, the history and legacy of those cultures in Spain were subject of centuries of cultural cleanse, meaning that we were never taught that behind the Spanish architecture, music, science, art, fashion, engineering, agriculture, medicine, and of course, gastronomic traditions, they were all deeply intertwined with influences from Arabic and Jewish cultures. Okay, so to put this in perspective, the Spanish rule in Mexico lasted for less than 300 years. And as we all know, it completely changed our lives with also devastating and profound implications for the indigenous world. Well, after being conquered by the Roman Empire, Hispania was left drifting like everybody else after the fall of Rome in the 4th century. And once the Islamic caliphates slowly started taking over the Iberian Peninsula, they remained there for the next 700 years. Now, You tell me if that is enough time to change a culture to the point of no return, meaning that absolutely all cultural expressions in the former territory of the Al-Andalus was and is profoundly shaped by this period. So the Arabic presence in Southern Europe, and of course specifically in Spain, started in the year 711 and lasted until 1492, as I mentioned earlier, after the union of the houses of Castile and Aragon that, by the marriage of Isabella and Ferdinand, managed to unite most Christian smaller kingdoms, and so they started the process known as the Reconquista, or Reconquest of the Territory. That meant the immediate and violent expulsion of the Jewish and Muslim population. But it is fair to say that by then, the hybridization of cultures was there to stay forever. It is no wonder then that one of the defining characteristics of the cuisine that took shape in the colonial period here in Mexico was influenced by the heavy use of spices that were often combined following the same flavor criteria of many Arabic and Jewish traditions, like mixing cloves with cinnamon, cumin and pepper, aniseed and orange blossom, and also these traditions influenced the use of sesame seeds, olive oil, pickles, lentils, rice, and all sorts of fruits, saffron, sugarcane, pomegranates, parsley, and even using raisins and other dried fruits together with seeds, like almonds and nuts to prepare picadillo or mincemeat and dozens of other dishes. And that is how we acquired a taste for rich, savory dishes that balance sweet and salty ingredients. In fact, a look into the Spanish confectionery and dessert-making traditions that were introduced in Mexico reveals these wonderful roots and further culinary experimentation. 
the Jewish and Andalusi traditions of making pan-fried or deep-fried butters and doughs to prepare buñuelos, round, plump donuts or bollitos, rosquillas, aloe habanas or cheese tarts, preparing syrups, gently infused with aniseed, orange blossom, fig leaves or rose water, were incredibly popular among the mixed heritage population. So treats with names like sopapilla, fortalejos, leche frita, alfajor, pastillas, fudge or dulce de leche, turrón, bermuelicos, alojabanas and torrijas or torrejas were a common sight at most households. Now, Christian Spaniards had their own favorite ingredients as well, and for centuries they had embraced pork as a prodigious source of meat. They used the head to make sieves, the skin to make parchments and odres or wineskins, and of course the endless uses of lard for cooking, preserving and even making soap. So it is no wonder that when they appropriated many of these desserts, they substituted vegetable oil with lard, as not only was cheap, it also became a way to differentiate themselves as neither Sephardi nor Muslim. Some of these recipes were simplified and became widely popular, so much so that when they introduced them into the Americas, we came to know their version of such recipes. In 1987, the Historical Center of Puebla was declared Cultural Heritage of Mankind by UNESCO. Now, while this declaration recognizes the century's old architectural legacy, vast range of styles, and uncanny beauty of the Talavera pottery and brickwork decoration that graces dozens of facades, it also served as a mechanism to ensure the protection and conservation of this irreplaceable legacy. Over the course of 500 years, Puebla has had many vocations as a powerful city of international trade and agricultural powerhouse, textile capital of the Viceroyalty, industrial hub and national education center. So, it is not surprised that dotted all over the center, you can find examples of outstanding architecture and surprising spaces that are clear evidence of our complex history. Puebla really has a je ne sais quoi that charms visitors, making such a profound impression that some never leave and fall victim to its charm. And that was very much the case of a German gentleman. He was a writer and philologist, Hugo Adelbert Henry Leichtmeier, or for short, Hugo Leicht, who was born in Hamburg in 1881 and moved to Puebla after being appointed as the headmaster of a German school or gymnasium. He rapidly fell in love with the city and its history and ended up becoming a founding member of the society for the history and conservation of heritage of the city, and started one of the most ambitious research projects ever done on the history of each and every property and street of the historical center, meaning the original Spanish city or Angelopolis. After several years of hard work, The Streets of Puebla was published, 
and became a Bible for urbanists, city planners, historians, archaeologists, and conservation architects, as it covers 399 years of history. Sadly, Leicht had a bit of a tragic end. You see, he always lived with his mother, whom he loved dearly. But after many financial difficulties and a short illness, his mother died and soon afterwards he went back to Germany, in spite of the many warnings from his friends about an imminent conflict. While he was in Germany, World War II erupted and he became severely ill and was bankrupt, depending entirely on the kindness of his Poblano friends who constantly sent him money. His health declined rapidly. And shortly before dying in 1952, he wrote a very sad letter to one of his friends, saying that he could not bear any more the sadness and sorrow of not being able to see his friends once more and travel back to the land of sunshine. After his passing, a delegation was put together to retrieve his body and bring him back to the city he loved so much. In fact, you wouldn't know, of course. But he happens to be my neighbor and I have visited his grave many times as he is buried at the Cementerio Frances, which is only a few minutes down the road from where I live. Thanks to Light's work, we know so much about the changes and uses of hundreds of properties that were related to food production. From markets to butchers, charcuteries, greengrocers, pulquerias and wine shops, and of course, granaries, mills and bakeries. In fact, Puebla has a prodigious variety of pastries and savory breads, and locals seldom skip the chance to enjoy a treat for breakfast, brunch, lunch, dinner or a snack. <laughs> It is true, poblanos have a fame for having a soft spot for baked goods. And, as you can imagine, it all started with introduction of wheat into the Americas. You see, wheat, as you know, is a very important crop for many European cultures, Spanish being one of them, of course. The importance of this cereal transcends its mere nutrimental or even culinary value because it is deeply intertwined into the fabric of their religious beliefs and identity. Bread, in many forms, is at the core of the idea of transubstantiation of the body of Christ during the Eucharist. And there are many constructs and meanings attached to the act of planting, reaping and transforming wheat, which is really a metaphor for prosperity. With all considerations in mind, and I mean all of them, we can say that the cultural importance of wheat for Spaniards had a similar key role to that of corn for Mesoamerican cultures, even when their rights and cultural uses were different. With this perspective in mind, we can better understand how both cultures needed to hold on to these crops and protect their presence in their food systems. However, wheat proved to be a very tricky seed to introduce to the much warmer climate and very different soils of this side of the world. They tried with no success to plant it in Havana and other Caribbean territories, even the shores of Veracruz and some other locations. 
But their persistence paid off when wheat finally seemed to feel at home in the fertile and cool valleys that surrounded the city of Puebla. And in a matter of years, this province became the granary of the Viceroyalty. And that is no exaggeration, because the wheat, flour, bread and sea biscuits that were produced here were sent on a regular basis to supply Caribbean garrisons, sent to feed the ever-so-hungry city of Mexico and other urban centers, and following uh, some of the several maritime routes of the Pacific, Puebla's most excellent grains and breads, flowers and sea biscuits, were a very anticipated and welcomed import for the Viceroyalty of Peru and the Philippines. As you can imagine, supplying for such a big demand required a supply chain that functioned with a clockwork machine precision. And to facilitate that, concessions were made to allow wealthy Spaniards to own farming lands, mills and bakeries. While this was against the anti-monopoly policies of the viceregal authorities, they were left with no choice than to allow a new landed oligarchy to grow in order to avoid conflicts and shortages. This activity enjoyed a relatively steady growth for more than 250 years. In fact, by 1794, according to an economic census ordered by the Viceroy Juan Vicente de Güemes, Count of Revillagigedo, in the province of Puebla, there was a total of 38 wheat mills. 14 of them were in the city of Puebla. Since bakeries were a highly profitable business in colonial Mexico and often owners found themselves unable to cope with the demand, they continuously hired immigrants who either knew the trade or trained to keep up with the relentless production. Among such immigrants were people of African and Asian origins, as well as people of Muslim and Jewish faiths, which turned to be a great advantage because they shared many techniques, recipes, and ingredients. One example of such recipes are semita buns. Semita bread, as we know it in Puebla, is a round savory bread with a crispy and golden brown crust topped with sesame seeds. Very similar breads were very well known in Spain as bread of the Semites or the Semitic people, meaning Jewish or Sephardi communities. And thanks to the city's historical archive, we know that Semitas were part of the many savory breads baked and sold at very affordable prices to working class people since they were made using bran and second or third quality grains and wholemeal flours. However, semitas poblanas have a key ingredient that spoke loudly to the Spanish taste and culture, and that was lard. Prepared semitas are a big culinary institution, and as it often goes with centuries-old foods, we seldom find in documents evidence of the first combinations of ingredients, so we have to depend on other methods to study both the continuity and changes in tastes. Many present-day semitas are prepared the following way. After slicing in half a whole bun and removing all of the crumb, 
the interior of the sliced bond is covered with avocado, top and bottom. Then we add handfuls of quesillo de cebrado or pulled string cheese, milanesa or schnitzel, papalo herb, thin onion rings, more avocado, and a generous drizzle of extra virgin olive oil. And for a fiery kick, we eat them with either vinegary pickled jalapeños or sweet pickled chipotles. Let me give you a fair warning by telling you not to call this food a torta, as that is the name of a different kind of bread. Now we consider correct to call it a sandwich. And if you do, well, you better prepare to see eyebrows rising. <laughs> Semitas are huge. I mean, really huge. And they are a whole meal that surprisingly we managed to finish them off with the help of an agua fresca or a soda. In episode 68, I talked extensively with ethno-historian Professor Alberto Peralta de Legarreta about the complex and large culinary, agricultural and botanical legacy of colonial monasteries and nunneries. We explored their role as defining institutions of education and political influence and discussed the fascinating social diversity of the communities that inhabited these spaces. In the case of feminine congregations, meant the possibility to have an intense culinary exchange where pre-existing indigenous foods and traditions were modified, enriched, and resignified as quote-unquote acceptable to the Spaniard's palate. And hence, there were also many cases in which these dishes were mythologized to feed certain narratives, and that was certainly the case of two emblematic foods from Puebla, chiles en nogada and mole poblano. Now let's have some context as to why these foods became emblems not only of Puebla's cuisine, but of Mexico as well. And for that, we will have to rewind the clock to the second decade of the 1800s. The War of Independence in New Spain was primarily led by the criollo caste, who were people born in this continent, but that had Spanish ancestry. And even after nearly 300 years since the colonization took place, the structure of the society was as rigid as ever, and the highest positions of power within the government and religious institutions were still tightly controlled by the so-called peninsular Spaniards, meaning people who were born in the Iberian Peninsula. The criollo caste, who largely outnumbered Europeans, also had the support of wealthy mestizo or mixed heritage people who longed to enjoy a more flexible social mobility. And after the war ended and independence was finally achieved, it was the criollos who then rose to power and faced the challenge of reinventing a nation that was polarized and in desperate need of a new identity. The problem, in their view, was that they did not identify themselves with the indigenous world, and they desperately wanted to distance themselves from Spain. Culturally speaking, this meant that they had to come up with symbols 
allegories and metaphors to build new representations of what it meant to be Mexican. To make matters more interesting, the intellectual elites had their eyes on a nation that was a beacon of inspiration for many countries in Europe and Latin America alike. And this nation was France. The French Revolution was followed by an enormous cultural, scientific and political effervescence that inspired and filled with hope many other countries. So much so that at some point Mexican intellectuals even entertained the idea of adopting French as a national language, which of course never succeeded. But you see how complex the process of nation building was. Food, at this point, became also a reflection of this, because no one wanted gazpachos, paellas, tortas de Santiago or fabadas at the tables of Mexicans during festive seasons, nor did they want indigenous foods for the matter. This is indeed a fascinating subject, and in fact, culinary nationalism is a relatively new research area that has quickly gained momentum. Food historians have really had a great time doing extensive work exploring these quote-unquote edible narratives of nationhood, thanks to which we know that the first cookbook ever published in Mexico was one called El Cocinero Mexicano, or The Mexican Cookbook, and was published in three volumes in 1831, and it was compiled by Mariano Galvan Rivera. Later on, And more important for us today was the publication of La Cocinera Poblana y el Libro de las Familias, or the Poblano Cookbook and the Book of Families, in 1877, compiled by Narciso Basols y Soriano. While this book includes many recipes from different Mexican cities and many from Spain, France, Italy, England, and even Germany, there is, of course, a big range of loved poblano dishes In fact, dozens of them, including albóndigas, several recipes for mole poblano, clemoles, pipián, mancha mantel, stuffed chiles poblanos, many desserts and antojitos or cravings like molotes and quesadillas. This book has been the subject of extensive research, and on the notes of this episode I will leave a link for you to find more about it. Now, between the publication of these two books, many events occurred in Mexico and specifically in Puebla, most notably the French invasion of 1862 and the heroic defense of the city in the famous Battle of Cinco de Mayo, to which I dedicated an entire episode last season, that was uh, number 70. So I won't dwell too much on it because it's really worth listening as I cover in great detail all of these events. Fast forward to the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution that started in 1810, we find that in the subsequent decades, the Mexican state really invested itself into creating a cultural narrative to desperately try to unify a torn and broken country. And this will be evident in the curated ideas of cultural icons, music, food, and all sorts of representation that depicted the image of what the state saw was the ideal form of nationalism. The golden age of Mexican cinema 
saw the screens filled with images of charros, mariachis, and very macho men who also sang, rode horses, and got into fights for no good reason. The carefully manicured idea of a Mexican fiesta, fueled with tequila, moles, tacos, and many antojitos, and people wearing traditional costumes, was a non-threatening portrayal of diversity that appealed to everyone. And at the center of patriotic events, certain foods were consistently promoted as iconic and representative, even if they were from specific regions and not really known or even embraced by the whole nation. Foods like pozole from Jalisco and pozole from Guerrero, barbacoa from Hidalgo and from the state of Mexico, and of course Puebla's own mole and chiles en hogada became all synonymous with the quintessential flavors and colors of Mexican cuisine. So now that we have that framing, let's get into these two wonderful dishes. Chiles en hogada are in many ways a gastronomic expression of the colonial Baroque and the result of many variations of recipes that in the course of centuries evolved and changed into the dish we recognize today, a savory celebratory meal prepared with generous amounts of expensive and highly valued ingredients, meticulously prepared and plated in such a theatrical way that it makes no attempt to hide the regal nature of this culinary masterpiece that was designed to impress, flatter, and fully display the unlimited artistry and wealth of rich poblano tables. The chilies in question are fresh poblano chiles that have an average length of around 20 centimeters, which are, of course, grown in the region, hence the name. The clear Muslim influence in the flavors and combinations that define the profile of the means that goes into them is mixed with Spanish and Mexican ingredients, producing a true feast to the senses. There are nearly 40 ingredients involved in the preparation, and to put this in perspective, let's say the Poblano families prepare days ahead by going to the nearby town of San Andres Calpan to source the pears, peaches, apples, walnuts, and these are added to other ingredients like tomatoes, onions, almonds, candied biznaga, which is a cacti, plantain, garlic, and either minced pork or beef. When it comes to the spices that build the aromas, we use cloves, cinnamon, and pepper. And prepping is a laborious and extenuating process, which is why it requires so much time to allow the flavors to develop and integrate. Once the mince is ready and cool, we move on to preparing the poblano chiles. We wash and clean them and then roast them on a naked flame or charcoal, moving them constantly to achieve an even blistering of the thin skin. And once all the skin is black, we put the chiles in a plastic bag or in between kitchen towels to steam them for about half an hour, maybe more. And then the skin is carefully removed. We make a long incision from tip to tail to remove veins, bulb, and seeds. Many egg whites are whisked to form stiff peaks before adding the yolks and several pans with oil are ready for frying the chiles, which are stuffed with the mince. 
rolled on wheat flour, dipped in the butter and fried on till they turn golden brown. When they are ready, we move them to cool off slightly before transferring to individual plates where they are placed at the center and generously covered with a rich and dense walnut sauce flavored with nutmeg, goat's cheese and sherry. And on top, pomegranate seeds are sprinkled along with individually picked beautiful parsley leaves. This dish has a huge importance for the poblano culinary identity as it is tied into our seasonal calendar. We only prepare and eat them between the months of August and September. And, as it goes with other traditional foods from around the world that originated in a precise region or place, chiles and nogada are unique and special because of the geographical, cultural and historical aspects that make them so distinctive. I really don't consider myself a culinary zealot, but... <laughs> There are certain aspects of traditional foods that I think are important to preserve, especially when it comes to seasonality and terroir. In other words, in my opinion, chiles and nogada should be eaten only when they are in season and of course, of course, in Puebla. Where else? And now, drumroll please, there's no other food from the city of Puebla as famous as the mole that carries its name. When moles, which were stews of indigenous origin, slowly shifted into what we now call moles, a key component of the indigenous identity was also imprinted in them. Remarkably, This ancient ritualistic aspect of this celebratory meal still reigns triumphantly at the center of our festive tables. And as you might guess it, at the core of these dishes are the many regional chiles that with their flavors, textures and aromas create unique profiles for each recipe and type of mole. And this is a good time To remind you that on episode 51, I talk all things chiles as part of the series of culinary staples, so you might want to check that episode. As I've been trying to explain, national identities carry tangible and intangible expressions of a society's relationship with its own past and the aspects of their culture that they choose to embrace and the ways in which they want to represent themselves. That is why Mexican food has played an important part in the shaping of our identities. And I say this in plural, identities, because as I explore in the series of the culinary regions, we have indeed many cuisines where the use of ingredients connects what we eat to the land in a metaphorical and practical way, making dishes all the more meaningful, memorable and evocative. We have seen how foods can be used as part of meta-narratives like Mexican hood or Mexicanidad. But what if I told you that under a particular set of extreme circumstances, those same elements can become a symbol of cultural resistance and defiance? I believe that that is the case of mole which is a particularly interesting one because, while it was indeed embraced by mixed heritage groups and transitioned from the indigenous world 
where it had several uses and meanings as everyday food, but also as a ritualistic dish, these stews or mulis, as they were called in Nahuatl, retained a lot of their ceremonial connotations, so much so that mole continues being the highlight of important events in our lives. First, let me be clear about what is my view about mole as a dish. In my opinion, and that of many mole experts, the simplistic description of this dish as a quote-unquote sauce not only undermines the culinary complexity of this dish, it misrepresents a food that is not a condiment, but a whole meal in and of itself, the same weight an elaborate stew or even a curry are, and you would never call them a sauce. The preparation of moles begins with the sourcing of ingredients that each will undergo different processes, from boiling to charring, chopping, grinding, toasting or frying. They all need to be pre-prepared in order to best extract the flavors, textures and aromas. And it might surprise you to know that ethno-culinary studies have revealed the existence of over 300 recipes of moles in Mexico. That is an astonishing number by any measure. So what then makes mole poblano so special? Well, <laughs> the answer is a complex one, but part of it lies in the fact that this mole, that is simply known as mole poblano, distinguishes itself from every other mole in the country for the vast quantity of ingredients and for the laborious preparation, which results in a dish with a sophisticated balance between sweet and piquant seasonings and has a rich texture and delicate layers of flavors and aromas. There are four dried chiles that define the profile of the flavors of this mole, and these are ancho mulato, pasilla, and chipotle. And to these, more than a dozen other fresh and dry ingredients are added, like peanuts, pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds, raisins, almonds, plantain, pepper, cinnamon, cloves, cumin, chocolate, tomatoes, onion, garlic, turkey or chicken broth, and many more ingredients are pre-prepared and then altogether ground into a paste. Now, this is traditionally achieved by using a grinding stone called metate, made with a single piece of volcanic rock that also requires the use of an elongated stone to grind the ingredients on the metate surface, which is called metlapil. When the paste is ready, it's lightly fried and then dissolved with the broth of chicken or turkey, and then is further seasoned with salt or sugar if needed. And before finishing the cooking process, pieces of poached turkey or chicken are added and then they are served with lavish amounts of mole, red Mexican rice sprinkled with sesame seeds and enjoyed either with torta de agua, which is a crusty bun from Puebla, or freshly made corn tortillas. This mole has a distinctive rich and thick texture and has noticeably fruity and earthy flavors, and it is dark brown in color. And as you can imagine, many poblano families proudly treasure their own version of mole, 
and each will have specific variations of the amount of ingredients that they will use and the flavors they like to enhance. I think this is a great opportunity for me to weigh into the discussion around authenticity and tradition. Since the declaration of cuisines as cultural heritage, there has been a conceptual shift caused by the need to pin down, describe and document individual recipes. Now, while documenting and memorializing traditions is always a great chance to preserve the history and practices of a culture, It also comes with the risk of turning a tradition into a dogma and creating rifts and rivalries that didn't exist before. Because the nature of traditional foods is that they respond to the cook's creativity, availability of ingredients, the food knowledge and techniques that have been passed down from generation to generation, and of course, inevitably, they will also have changes that over time are absorbed into the tradition itself. And while there is not one canonical recipe to prepare any kind of mole, there are, however, sets of ingredients and techniques that are carefully followed to replicate such recipes. And that is why no two moles will ever taste the same, even if they are prepared by the same person, let alone different family recipes. So instead of wasting our time arguing over what's authentic or not, let's focus on what makes each regional expression unique and delicious. Now, to finish this episode, I want to say that of course not everything is pomp and circumstance when it comes to food in Puebla. We also have a huge variety of snacks, pick-me-ups and treats that we enjoy on the go, like the iconic and world-famous Arab tacos and pastor tacos, whose history I covered in episode 36 called Immigrant Foods in Mexico. And indeed, we have an astonishing repertoire of sweet treats in the form of traditional confectionery, pastries, handmade sweets, preserves, fruity wines, jams, biscuits, marzipans, mezcales, cider, and of course pulque, which I also explored in depth on episode 69. Episode 36, called Central High Plains, was part of the culinary region series, and that will give you an overview of other cuisines of this area where the state of Puebla is located. Puebla is really a city to be enjoyed and explored with all your senses. Walk its streets, smell and taste the foods and drinks that are a testimony of 500 years of gastronomic history. And I hope you can appreciate the epic effort I have done today to try and scratch the surface of all these wonderful edible treasures that my city has. I really want to insist on the fact that we owe a big debt to cooks, bakers, farmers, craft drink producers and everyone involved in the long chain that indeed produces the real cultural value of our food, because it is their skills, knowledge and passion that makes Puebla's and Mexico's cuisine so unique.
Thank you for listening. This episode was researched, presented, and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. To know more about how you can book a private gastronomic experience in Puebla, please check this episode's notes. Many of the recipes and foods that I mentioned today are actually included in uh, several of my ebooks. For example, you can find the recipe to prepare mole poblano in Mexican chocolate, the recipes to prepare semitas and Arab pastor tacos, and many more delicious classics are in my ebook Mexican Street Food. And of course, you can find other titles in my digital bookstand and all the links are on the episodes. Notes. I have also prepared a special blog post with recommended books and further readings and academic papers if you want to read more about nationhood, decolonization and culinary nationalism in Mexico. By all means, go there on my website. There's a reading list waiting for you that will continue feeding your curiosity. And remember, I am always available on social media. Find the podcast on Twitter as Chipotle Podcast. And I am on Instagram as at rocio.carvajalc. And you can drop me a line to hello at pasachipotle.com. And I really, really hope you have enjoyed this little taste of all that awaits for you here in Puebla. In the meantime, take care, my friends. Until the next time. <laughs>